Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Um, welcome to the 12th episode of Season 3 of the Tom Petty Project Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. Uh, this is the podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue, song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected to Tom along the way. Um, today's episode is another interview slash conversation episode, and I'm joined today by a rhythm guitarist, a songwriter, a clinical pathologist, and a huge Tom Petty fan, Nick Apostolaris. Um, I didn't edit this one down too much, as I think you'll enjoy our sort of rambling extended discussion, um, and I won't keep you from it. So I'll see you at the end for a little announcement about next week's episode. Enjoy. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Nice to meet you, hey, virtually. Congratulations on this whole project. It is really cool. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, it's it was one of those things, you know, I was sitting around and I was actually having a few beers and I thought, I was just shit posting on Facebook. I thought, I, I should like do a podcast or something because I had a another music review podcast with a friend of mine and that was kind of on hiatus. So I thought, well, I'll just, I'll go through the entire Tom Petty catalogue. And then I saw it just kind of sat with me and I thought, actually, you know, I think that is something I could do. And then once I sort of started planning and committed to it, then I sort of looked into the catalogue and I'm like, oh crap, this is like over 350 songs. <laughs> what have I set myself up for? Yeah, what is your time frame in terms of going through? Because you're you're actually getting pretty granular in terms of what you're looking at. You're not just superficially looking at it. Yeah, what well, I mean, and that's the thing, right? So it's it takes me probably around. I think it takes me about two and a half hours to write an episode for a song. So that's including sort of doing a little bit of research and then again listening to it. And, and you know, as a musician, listen to the guitar part listen to the bass, listen to the drums, listen to the vocals, and try and pick those things apart so that you can really sort of drill down into, oh, shit, I didn't realize that Ron Blair was doing that thing there in that little part, you know? Um, So, yeah, one song per episode, um, and I think I've got, yeah. I've scheduled out, so just Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, so that's, uh, and I think, no, that's, yeah, with Mudcrutch as well, um, but that's not any of the B-sides, none of the sort of unreleased stuff or the Wilburys. That takes me okay. to Ju- July 15th, 2026. Is my timeline so far? <laughs> and you're you're still you're keeping the enthusiasm, obviously. You're keeping yeah. the interest. Yeah. Well, again, I mean, I think it's that thing I found really early on. What I sort of suspected was that, and again, as a, as a musician, you do tend to listen to music a little bit differently to a to a layperson, maybe. In that it just gives you a, a huge appreciation, more, even more of an appreciation for the music because you know if you listen to the songs casually, they're they're great songs and you can tap your foot to them and you can sing along, but when you listen to, you know, like a song like Fault Lines and you listen to that little bossa nova oh, well, rhythm yeah. that Steve Ferroni's playing, it's just like, wow, I hadn't really noticed that so, so much before, you know? So, yeah, it's super well, cool. You know, it's, it. it's funny, you throw in the new guy there. Okay, so the new guy, sort of a session guy, but not really a session guy. He was premier, yep. an average white band, incredibly tight. So yep. here's the like musician's musician. He comes in for a gig following some other guys that are that are trying out. And like uh, TP looks, looks at Mike and is like, no, 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 that's that. Yeah. That's what I've always, that's what I've wanted, right? He's yeah, the man. Sure. But he's not even the star. He's a background player. Yeah. So the level of musicianship is just so high. And the like, commitment to playing together as a live band. Yeah. And the and with you know, forget about Jeff Lynn, but the other producers sort of understood that this was a magic live band. So they let them play. Yeah. And you just don't get that. It's it's amazing. It's it's like it's like a peak period 
in in rock and roll music peak period. Yeah. Future. And I think the sort of the essence of that, the, the thing that you're talking about there, especially is that and capturing that live feel is Mojo, right? You know, Ryan Oliata comes in and they do it in the clubhouse and it's basically live off the floor with, you know, obviously some overdubs, but my God, I mean, you cap- talk about capturing a band the way they actually sound. And that's what I always want to hear on a record. It's same as that's why I love Foo Fighters and Dave Grohl always says, I want it to sound like us live. It needs to, the record needs to sound like us. And I always get that with Tom, especially, you know, again, those later albums, I think are just a great example of that. The um, there is just something about you know they started you know you hear stories well you heard the Beatles well I can't do that heard the Stones so I can do that right and then so this sort of Stones ethic with Keith of of um, the, the the intertwined you know he calls it the the weaving yeah and he felt comfortable with Ronnie well Ronnie's not the be- not the the most proficient thrash you know he can't he's not a he's not a lead god but he and keith had a thing so they could work together and i think tom petty's underrated as a rhythm guitarist how much there's interplay between tom petty and mike mike is obviously a guitar guy but tom petty set that whole thing up and allowed mike to do everything and tom petty was really a fantastic rhythm guitarist yeah and and i think I've talked about that on a previous episode or two even maybe that it's one of the things that you don't realize if you, if you don't sort of dig into the music that Tom's writing those things and leaving spaces because he knows that Mike's going to do something kick-ass, right? And he's doing that very deliberately. Or he's playing something where he knows if I'm playing this part, Mike's going to play something or he's going to play a counterpoint to it or he's going to, it's definitely going to be complimentary, right? So, and, and the, the interplay between all of them and Ron Blair and, you know, Lady Howie, um, it's the same thing. That it's everything's complimentary and everything's very deliberate, which is what I love about that band. You know, they took they didn't never took themselves seriously, but took the music and the, the composition of the music very, very seriously. That's a really good. That's a really good way to put it. Like you'll say, okay, well, look at this this progression, and you got four chords. Anybody with a, with a, with an acoustic guitar can play it. But no, you you say that to Tom Petty. Some interviewer would go to him and go, yeah, what's well, kind of a simple song? And he'd give that wry look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's simple, okay. Yeah. It's actually pretty complicated once you figure all the, you know, what's going on. It, it's there's simplicity yeah. sort of in a superficial way, but then there's real musicianship underlying it all. 100%. And Mike, Mike is like this secret weapon. I know I'm not, I'm kind of going off a little bit, but Mike was a, a, really a, a genius, but he didn't feel like he had to be the center of attention. So he would dial it all back and, and these great melodic, compositions that turned uh you know sort of a, a good song into like wow yeah but he didn't need to be the center but tom petty knew that he, what he meant so he wrote around him it seemed 100 percent. and again just a, a, you know we always talk about lennon and mccartney and jagger and richards and all those 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 key sort of songwriting combos and we don't talk about tom and mike very often in the same way but they 100 percent were because you know you, you sort of well, everyone else in the band, apart from Mike and Ben, came and went, um, and you still managed to keep that ethos. But I think if you lose Mike Campbell out of that setup, I don't think someone can come in and do that part. No one else can come in and, and play off Tom the same way that Mike did because they're perfect for each other. That symbiosis between the two was, it's just perfection, right? It's perfection, and you think about them as solo records, right, Kevin? But they're not solo records yeah. because it's that, it's that duo. You know, it's the captain and the co captain there. On the solo records, yeah, hundred so percent. It's it's the solo is those two. Yeah, yeah, and and it, it's again the 
the solo records, I think some people get hung up on those or seem to get seem to get hung up on those. I know that obviously there was some tension in the band with Full Moon Fever oh, yeah. because it's like, well, why are we? Why are you going off doing this? And it's sort of, I think it's more just, well, I want to, you know, as Tom explained, I just want to try working with a few other people just to see what that's like and see what it brings in. And I don't think even the Heartbreakers later on would have argued that what that did bring back to the Heartbreakers made them better because Tom had these new influences and new experiences and working in different ways. And that just enriches you as a musician. Yeah, it's totally right. It, it, it just, it's sort of, I think of Mike as sort of underappreciated in the creative side of things. He's yeah. not just a guitar, you know, a lead guitar God, but he was really part of the creative process. Can you imagine those cassettes that he brought in oh. where he might've had 20 ideas for songs and yeah. just gave them to Tom and imagine the stuff that got thrown out. And what would you give to hear them? You know? know. Well, that's one of my sort of, if you know, my, obviously my very bucket list sort of, aspirational guest would be if I, if I get to speak to Mike Campbell it's one of the questions you know because I'd love to know if when he when he sort of formed the Dirty Knobs did he go back and listen to some of those things and, and look for riffs and look for things that he could use again and pull out because some of those songs do have a sort of late 70s feel maybe sort of a mid 80s so you think okay well, he's obviously going to change them and, and make them more contemporary but did he use anything did he go back because I think all musicians do when you're writing a song sometimes you think oh man what was that line I had kicking around in that other thing that I didn't record oh there it is yeah I can use that <laughs> Something else, something else. And then Benmont. So, you know, for me, uh, it, the, the core of the band is, is a guitar band, but that's just because I'm a guitar guy. Yeah. Um, so Benmont made it to me. He complimented the guitars. He kept it a guitar band. I don't know where this outtake was from, but he said something like, he got mad at at, at, at Mike and Thomas or something like, you're in the Blanket Hall of Fame and you got you got guitars in the Hall of Fame. You should be playing your guitars a little harder here. So he <laughs> knew it was a guitar band. Yeah, of course. He, he was a virtuoso. He was a genius, right? Benmont. Well, again, another guy, it's like John Paul Jones in, in Zeppelin, right? Like they're so talented, but they know just when to sit back. They know don't don't get in the way, but when when it's time to rip it, well, Jesus, Ben Monk can boogie like that guy can play, right? Oh, yeah. But he knows that the songs, you know, I think I was talking about, I can't remember which one it was. I think it might have been off the last album or off um, down the torpedoes. I think it's Century City, where there's so much going on. It's such a busy song guitar wise. There's lots going on. And it's very energetic and frenetic. So all Ben Monk has to do is just provide that texture. He's just playing full chords and he's not ripping. But then in the spaces in between where the sort of the song drops off a little bit, then he puts those piano bits in. So he's taking it. I'll just sit in the pocket and I'll just sit there and I'll just wait for my time and I won't muddy things and I'll just get him when I need to. Well, that's a great band, right? That yeah. they're not yeah. vying. They're not vying with each other. They're complimenting each other. Yeah. And it's like you know, it's a peak. You get a peak, and that that that's like top performance. And yep. these guys, the, the weird thing is, you know, I go back and, and American Girl was, I think it was recorded on the on the American Bicentennial of, yes. of July seventeen seventy six, nineteen seventy six, right? And then you think that was like when Jimmy Carter was president, <laughs> right? Jimmy Carter was president. I think so. Crazy <laughs> the, the cultural change between that and Hypnotic Eye. Oh, what went on in the world, and yeah. yet they're they're not just they're not just nailing it musically, but they're they're hearing the cultural they're 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 cultural. Um, you know, Tom is is making statements yeah. about American culture that are relevant throughout that entire period, but also not sort of not in a combative way. Like you know, Bono pisses a lot of people off in you too because he's he's so sort of 
directing what he's doing where Tom's he could read the mood and he could sort of read the the temperature of the room and not do it in such a way that it's it's not rage against the machine it's not a it's not a complete rebel song but it's there's content in there that when you actually listen to it what he's saying you know the shifts in the music industry and last dj and some of those kinds of tracks he's got a very good ear for cultural sort of references and, and contemporary life so so i totally agree with you yeah. Hypnotic Eye, I think itself, I've I, I read somewhere that it, it has to do with all the cell phones. Oh, really? I, I read it. I'm not, I, don't, I don't remember the source, but that he was commenting on, that the phone was hip, essentially hypnotizing the crowd. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that makes, see, see, that that makes some sense. Yeah. I don't know where I read it, but it was, it was something like, so he was like deconstructing the view of the crowd from the yeah. stage. It's like, you know, in the beginning, they were just all on him. Like, there was that that gig, I don't know when, it, it was really early. It might have been 78 when he fell into the crowd. Right. And he got, like, ripped up. Very, really visceral. Yeah. And, like, it, the, 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 the performer and the crowd, and it was a punk mood, and it was right there. And I, and I remember he wrote that his mom got really scared for him, that he yes. really got almost hurt. And then... You know, you fast forward and the crowd is taking selfies and the crowd is talking and the crowd's recording him. And you have this mediator yeah. of the phone. And it just feels it's sort of symbolic there, I think, of the cultural difference. But he was on it, of course. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you, but it, it, that just onto that point, that drives me crazy at gigs. When you see people who literally watch two and a half hours through this little tiny screen, they're there. They're right there. I saw that it was. This, I watched the Who. The Who came to Saskatoon five or six years ago, or two of them anyway, I guess. But um, and same thing. People watch. It's like Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend. They're right there in front of you. Just put your phone down. You know, surely it's and it's never going to be as good when you watch it on your phone later. It's, the sounds crap and it's it's too small and it's shaky. I don't know why you bother, but <laughs> I don't know, man. Some of the people they want to save it instead of experience it. Yeah, and really, you know, in the long run. We're all done for anyway. So you've got to experience every moment. And Absolutely. if you've got that possibility of a peak experience, you want to be in it. You yeah. don't want to be like middle of it. Yeah, and I'm sure you must do it too. Like, you know, when you the, the good thing about going to a gig is just watching one musician. You're just like, oh. okay, I want to see what he does there. What's he? Ah, oh, that's how he's playing that. Okay. Especially for drummers, right? Like a drummer, it's like, ah, oh, they switch into the ride. They're, okay, he's coming around. The, oh, okay, I can think I can maybe try that now, you know. Yeah, you know, when I was young, there was so much guesswork about yeah. what was going on. What was how was the guitarist playing this? What was the song like? How, you know, where on the fretboard was it? How, what is it? Or even what is the the singer singing? Yeah. But with you, you know, you could look at that and you go back and you have three different versions of it. And it says, "Holy cow, look at that!" Well, that's using open, and there he's trying that. It's barred up, and yeah. you know, so you can you. The level of understanding of the music, I think now, technically, yeah. is so much higher than when Tom Petty came out, when it was sort of like magical and making the record was very magical. Yeah, for sure. And they just went out and did it. But nobody really, I mean, like when I was in bands it, back, back, we were just listening and just going note by note and like, what's that? How do you make that? What's the fingering? Yeah. But the subtleties were were lost. Like a lot of what, Tom Petty does is is open is chiming open strings. Yeah, and it might be you know so some of his stuff it doesn't work unless you're down on the neck and it's open strings and you can keep you know one 
one note pinned and then you have open around it. It's just a certain sound that you have to watch and do it. Yeah. To say, oh, look at him. Look at that. That's how he did it. Well, Campbell's a master at that too. You know, here comes my girl. He's got that suspended, yes. that suspended bottom note. Never changes really through the whole chord progression, and it oh, gives that right. sort of that clarity and that that it's so, it's an anchor for the whole chord progression. It's so clever. It's just a simple thing, but so so clever. Yes. Indeed. So talking about your sort of, um, you know, you, you were in bands way way back. So whereabouts did you grow up, and what sort of New York City area? Okay. And what sort of influences were around? What, what was the music around uh, around you around your house when you were growing up? Okay, well, actually, my my parents were both in the music business. Okay. So, um, and my, I want to give a plug to my my late mom. She was, by all accounts, the first woman producer of a Broadway show. So, no way. Uh, she's an amazing, amazing woman. And my dad um, started uh, a record distributorship right out of World War II, and uh, wound up distributing Motown and um, and Arista. So I was sort of in that in that milieu growing up and all of our vacations were going to music conventions. And, you know, so I, I met all these people and um, it took a lot of the, it took a lot of the um, maybe glamor away from it. Yeah. Right. So and you got to see behind the curtain. Yeah. You got to see behind the curtain early on. I was like, well, I don't really like that. And, <laughs> you know, my dad would say something like, you know, well, it, you know, it took him 20 takes to do that. He wasn't on the music side. He was on the business, on the uh, distribution side, but you, you know, sort of, you know, the, what do you say, you know, that there was, uh, everybody had clay feet. Okay. And then I saw the business try to pump everybody up. So that became somewhat aversive to me, like this whole star thing. Yeah. And, the, and, and seeing people do poorly with fame. So yeah, that yeah, was, yeah. that was difficult seeing. And I learned a lot, like, well, that's something I never want. I never want to be famous. That's really, <laughs> that was like a life lesson. Yeah early on around the music business that that was sort of a, its own pursuit that generally did not lead to anything good. Yeah. Well, and so that, it's, the, it's the subject in Joe, right off again, off last DJ. And he's talking about these, a, a young girl with a guitar and she gets to be famous. I get to be rich. And it's that thing of these days you, you hear young people interviewed sometimes and you say, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to be famous. Okay. But what for? Like, what do you mean you want to you should, you should want to be excellent at something and then yes. become well-known because of it. Not fame in itself should never be the end. And I don't think it ever was for Tom, right? Like it, he was never sort of, no. oh, I want the limelight. I want this. No, I want to make the best music I can make consistently day in, day out and go and play songs in front of people. Yeah. He, he, he was, just, I mean, this guy, he was, a, he was a master observer of the human condition and yes. also of American pop culture, which I don't know if people from other cultures get just how immersed he was in the stuff like TV stuff and, and popular movies. And a lot of his lines came from that and yeah. he just took it and made it his own. It's not exactly on point, but when he's like, uh, even it, it good to be King. Well, I listened to Steve Froney talk about it. It's like, yeah, Tom, you know, he, he had a certain confidence when he played it, but really it's, to my ear and hearing him talk about it, it was, you know, the, the key line is there, you know, is uh, when dogs get, when dogs get wings, right? Yes. That's the line. Yeah. So he's saying, you know, it's all this, but it ain't going to be, it's not me. You know, I'll be king when dogs get, 
yeah. get wings. So he was always deconstructing and then looking at it. You know, he knew he was a star. He liked success from what I've read. He appreciated the success. He, he was a, you know, he was a boss. Yeah. He was a clear boss and, and there was only one boss and it was going to be him. And he was an individual. So he was going to be, this was interesting. He was to me, he was an individual. He was a boss, but he was pro-social and pro-community both. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think when you talk about that, though, being a boss, he was very clear about what he wanted and what he expected out of himself and out of his band and out of the people around him, the management, right? So he never sort of compromised yes. on, on his vision his, and his artistic vision to get him from point A to point B. But it wasn't sort of, it was never sort of, well, I'm in charge because I'm Tom freaking Petty. It says, no, no, this is my thing and I need you to be, I need it to be this way because that's what I see and that's what I need to end up at, right? But everybody recognized this yeah. was the man with the vision. This was the man with the plan and they trusted him. I mean, yeah. they gave, didn't a couple of them? Well, Mike was going to go in the in the service, right? And Benmont was going to go to college. Yeah. And he talked to Benmont's dad, who was like a judge or something. Yeah. And yeah. he could have Benmont to go play. So he was very persuasive. He was this, this, this bigger than life personality, even as this sort of common looking kid. Yeah. With no education and no background, he was he was the guy. And it's just cool to see that he didn't take that and go to hurt others yeah tried to help others but to me he carried around a, an awful lot of pain that he, he carried yeah. on a lot of pain that comes out in his music and comes out in, in in every which way and that's yeah you know not the fan side of it but he he was very damaged of course yeah i mean obviously to the end being the end right i mean that, that it's, it's yeah. so it's so sad and i think you know, we always sort of, we only see the artists a lot of the time, especially if they're very private and they don't put themselves out there. So, of course, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. And I always get frustrated when, you know, you'll, you'll hear sometimes on the, on the fan groups talking about, oh, you know, he, he really should have gone and got that hip sorted out and he'd still be here and it's, it's blah, 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 blah. Well, yeah, but you don't know what was going on. You weren't there and you, you can't really, and he doesn't owe us anything for God's sakes. I mean, geez, Louise, he's not given us enough. He's not left us with enough of a legacy that you need more, you know, so. Find that frustrating yeah. sometimes, but so do you remember? Do you remember? Sorry, do you remember what the first? Do you remember the first time you heard Tom, or the first sort of album that you bought? Or what was your what was your exposure to his music? So I heard him on the radio before the first release. So the first release of the first album. This was like one of my early experiences, and that it didn't hit. So this has got to be like seventy six. So in, right. it hit in in, in uh, Britain, but it didn't hit in the United States the first LP first. So I remember hearing this. It was like, wow, that's something. And then it came back yeah. like 18 months later. And back then the, the, the cycle of singles was very fast. So something was going to hit. It had a, you know, a normal curve. It was going up as far as it's going to go up, it's going to come down, but it's all going to happen fast. And this one was not normal. So yeah. it was released and it was like a very minor hit. It's probably American girl. Uh, it, it, you heard it and then it went away, but then it came back. Well, thank, thanks to John Scott, right? I mean, thank God for John yes. Scott finding that album in that, that closet and, and just making it his life's mission to get this record played. So, In Great Britain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm touring over there. I mean, it, I think it is... It's funny, though, too. I, th I wonder whether some of that was, you know, an American band coming over. It's always going to be a little bit more exotic than an American band playing in America. And it's the same thing, you know, when English bands, you get the English invasion. Well, if those same bands had been American... 
I don't know if it would have had quite the same impact because it wasn't. It just the cultures were different enough that you know you've got some coming over like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers coming over. No one's playing rock and roll quite like that in the UK at that time. Not really, right? Right, that's right. His genre back then, as it was as the band was forming, was it was like I'm a psychologist, a clinical psychologist. So it was almost okay. like a projective test. So you see in him what you want to see in him. If you wanted to see Southern rock in him, you'd see Southern rock. If you wanted to see, uh, you know, singer songwriter, you'd pick that. You'd pick out whatever Luna. You, if you wanted to see punk, yeah. Well, by you'd see punk, and you'd see his attitude as punk. Or, so he was a slate that people could put up to what they wanted out of him. But he was a star, no matter what the genre. He was the guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and mean, he knew Britain. He knew, see, to me, he wanted to be the Beatles. <laughs> he wanted to be, he wanted that. He wanted yeah. to be the Beatles, the Stones. Uh, but he was also listening to American black music. Yeah. No, I mean, there's, there's that great quote where he talks about the realization for him was, you know, when you, when you watch, I don't know, buddy guy or you watch bb king or you, well i can't do that that's just that's too far that's just virtual so i can't do that but when you see the beatles oh all i, I need is it. three of my friends that can definitely do yeah. that you know and it did it inspired so many people to pick up instruments and just form garage bands i don't remember the quote kevin but i i thought when he heard the beatles he was intimidated by them and then when he heard the Stones, it was like, oh, man, I can do that. <laughs> I know I can do the Stones. The <laughs> Beatles, man, those guys really, they're singing that harmony, yeah. and they've got these complicated things. The Beatles were were aspirational, but the Stones were like, nah, man, I can do the Stones. Well, again, you go back to sort of simplicity, and a lot of people think that what the Stones is doing is simple. Well, yeah. there's some pretty good stuff going on in those songs as well, right? So. Oh, man. So you did ask me sort of early influences and, yeah. and with mom. I think my, my earliest music, other than what my family was doing, a lot of a lot of Motown, but the band that I thought like I like that attitude. It was Keith Richard. It was Keith Richard, sticky fingers. Yeah. And like turning that up, listening to both channels, and can't you hear me knocking and feeling like the movement of the volume of air out of those Marshall out of those speakers. And the echo on the second track is like, whoa, now that's powerful. That That is powerful. He understands, like, the guitar is a percussion instrument. He, yep. he, he, gets, he gets how to how to have an opening riff that floors you. And it was that kind of period. And I think, you know, this is this is Tom Petty Project, but for Keith, my guess, because I did, like, spend a lot of time thinking about his guitar. And that was my high school project was on the Rolling Stones. <laughs> so I graduated. Uh, I think when Mick Taylor came in, Keith wanted to show that he was a guy. He was a guitar guy. Yeah. And he put together some amazing things, sort of as counterpoint to Mick Taylor's virtuosity. Yep. Different type of virtuosity for Keith, and I was like, "Holy man, he just knocked me out!" So all those open G five string uh, percussive openings. You listen to anything that I do, it's like, well, that's my holy grail. Is if I can be half as impactful as as Keith, that's it. He was it for me. Yeah. So I, so it's funny you mentioned that because I, I know that I knew that obviously that you're a Stones fan because I was listening to the album. We'll get into this a little bit later, but on um, yeah. lockdown, lockdown, looking up, 
I was like, well, that's just that's a Keith Richards riff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's just got that same swagger to it. It's it's chunky and it's driving. I was like, yeah, th- this dude's definitely a Keith Richards fan. So, <laughs> yeah, my goal in life was if you would ever retire, for gosh sakes, maybe there'd be an opening, man. But <laughs> that's the dream for every musician. <laughs> And for everybody, for every kid, yeah. it's like, oh, my gosh. So anyway, yeah, Keith, Keith got me into that sense of, of the, the power of what he didn't play. Yeah. What the, he didn't the, play. It's the jazz adage, then, right? It's the notes that you don't play are the ones that are important. So. <laughs> wow. And I'm like so much, you know, it's like you can't say in the same breath. I'm just saying it's aspirational to, to kind of get that vibe yeah. that he came. He's a total master. And then Mike is so lyrical, going back to Tom Petty, it's like, it was different because Mike reminded me a little bit more of, of Mick Taylor. Yeah. Uh, right? Mick Taylor didn't really, wasn't able to flourish in the limelight for as long, but Mick Taylor could have evolved into really a very lyrical, beautiful player. Yeah. Uh, but he didn't have his partner. Now, Tom Petty as a partner wanted Mike to thrive. Yeah. Keith wanted Keith to thrive. Yeah. And Keith did. <laughs> yeah. No offense. No, no, it's, it's, and I, I, I hadn't really actually thought about that before, but they are very similar in the, in the way that they're so melodic. Yeah. Like, you know, they, they write, they, they write very melodic parts and they can do the rhythm stuff too, but they're, they're so sort of, they know how to balance and move a melody along. So it's not, it never gets boring, but it's never erratic, but it's just yeah. so beautiful. Right. So, so when did you start playing then? Like, obviously, coming from a musical family, were, were instruments around the house, or was that something you sort of went off and, and did on your own? Or um, I learned to play piano grudgingly as a kid. <laughs> uh, didn't didn't do well with it. I guess the only story with that was I was terrible, and I would only play when the teacher came. You know, I saw the teacher, and then I said, "This is a waste of everybody's time." So <laughs> one summer, I like played piano like two hours a day. And then I saw the teacher the next fall and she looked at me like she was going to fall off the, she was going to fall off the bench. Like, who is this kid who's actually playing? Yeah, but if you're playing for yourself, it's just yeah, totally different, right? It's a hundred percent different. My, my daughter ended up a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic hit. Um, she decided she didn't want to do piano lessons anymore, but in the last yeah. 12 months, she comes down now and she'll sit and play on the piano and she remembers that she can play by ear now and she's got a ukulele and she's got her guitar and she's, so she'll sit and play. Once you get to that stage, once you're playing because you love playing, well, then it's, you just, you're, you're done for then, right? That's just a lifelong obsession after that. And I was just oppositional. So if I was supposed to do something, I just wasn't going to do it. It's a waste, right? So then I got a, you know, $50 guitar and played it and it, the action was like ridiculous, you know, so I, I couldn't play it. And, you know, bless, bless my father. He got me a nice guitar. He got me. You still have your first, like, real guitar? Yeah. Oh, nice. He got me this SG. Oh, beauty. Uh, remember, it's a beauty. That's a Gibson SG 77. And uh, I still, that's what I, that's what I play all the, uh, I play all the, you know, um, five string stuff on that pretty much yeah. that's get it's recorded and uh it's not you know it's it's um he didn't i don't know why he did it but he just he kind of thought it was it would be good for me to to go forward and he did so I, i'm very grateful for that so starting to play then and getting into sort of you know obviously i'm assuming then keith richards and playing the stone songs and those kind of things 
at what point did, did you ever sort of get to a point where you just sort of said, I'm going to get a bunch of high school buddies or I'm going to get a bunch of friends and we're going to jam now and actually start playing together. So what was that sort of those, what was that early progression? like? Uh, for you? Yeah, there was a band at school um, that uh, I, I just had, I brought my guitar and there was like, this was a, a very academic school, Kevin, okay. and people were studying really, really hard. And I started playing my guitar. Apparently, it was too loud. I was playing my guitar too loud <laughs> in the dorm. And the neighbor, he's, he's a sweetheart of a guy, he came over and goes, Nick, I like your playing, but, you know, it's coming through the, the <laughs> electrical outlets. And it's, like, vibrating out. And, and it's just oh. too loud, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, man, I want it to be. <laughs> That's the point. <laughs> and so that apparently got out. There was one band that was uh, just forming and was looking for rhythm guitars called the Dead Bears. Okay. And we played uh, for a while, had fun. And uh, I learned from a really good lead guitarist um, and sort of developed as a rhythm guitarist in that. Left school. Um, uh, left school. My dad got sick. I left school to take care of him and uh, really didn't do much with music other than listen. Okay. Uh, for, for a real long time, listened a lot and, and played, but not for anybody. And then uh, just more or less finding some local musicians to play with um, more recently and realizing that I had a lot I, I wanted to do and got into it late uh, yeah. and said you know it's only for me and i want to do it and i've got songs and things i want to say so it's gonna have i'm gonna have fun and i'm gonna do it it's the, it's the best it's the only reason to do it really and again i've I talked to people about this i've got you know lots of friends who are musicians obviously as, as when you're a musician you, you tend to i said you know even if you don't go out and, and tour anymore even if you don't go out and play anymore you can't turn that tap off if you if you're a songwriter it just it sneaks up on you, and the line comes. And then when you get a line, it's like, oh, I wonder if I could write a second line. Once you get a second line, oh, maybe I've got a verse here. And then, or if you're just plinking away, it's like, that's a riff. That's something I can use. That it just you can't turn that off. And I don't know that you could ever walk away from it, right? Because I mentioned punk. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, our band, we did one only one Tom Petty song. We did uh, Need to Know. And I listened to a tape of when we did it, and we did it at like, oh my gosh, it must have been like 170, you know, beats per minute. It was so fast, and it it was like totally punk, right? Yeah. It was it was just we went at it like that, and you could with with that song, and he had that element to him. But I was listening to um, Nobody's Children, that yeah. co- you know that collection. And come on down to my house. If yep. you hear that one, it's in playback. So it's in disc six of playback. Yep. No children one. And it's come on down to my house. And I'm pretty sure it was 1993 when he heard Nirvana. Right. And yeah, you know, it's it's grunge, it's it's post punk, whatever it is. But he was like Okay, we're gonna we're gonna kick, we're gonna kick this one. Now, okay, Nirvana. <laughs> what's Nirvana doing over there? That, that that that's that's. Wait a second. Wait a second. Yeah. Wait a second. So you know, and, and and by that time he was sort of coming out of ninety one, ninety two, sort of a challenging period. Now the cool sound had changed. Now yeah. here's Nirvana. Smells like Teen Spirit, and he's 
like, okay, can, can we up-tempo this and really nail it? So that to me was like the thread within Tom Petty of trying to, you know, come back to his punk, that element of punk roots. Yeah, and just absorb, absorb things. Not and never, it was never mimicked anyone else really. I mean, there was the there was the bird sound on a few of the early songs, and there, there was there's little bits and pieces here where you take those elements in, but it was never mimicry. It was always said, okay, well, I like that part of that sound. I like this part of that sound. Now, how do I make it sound like the Heartbreakers? How do I now turn that around and put that out and make it my own? And he Definitely. had a superb knack of doing that, I think. Because again, I mean, those things like you know, um, uh, don't do me like that, or or the songs where. You could say this got some influence from. Um, was I, listening? I was listening to "Don't Do Me Like That," and it reminded me of not Fats Waller, Fats Domino, just the way oh. that Ben Mont's hitting the keys. So it's got a real sort of rhythm to it, but it doesn't sound like an old blues piano player because it's been sort of put through that lens of well, what, how do the Heartbreakers sound? Well, they've got a guitar, they've got guitars for start, and there's a big ass drummer, so it's never going to sound exactly like its its original source material. But just turning it around, and spinning it. So I think that ability to absorb influences, even if it's someone like Nirvana who comes years later and he's already been on the scene for so long, and it sounds on the face of it very different. But really, I mean, I always get hung up on genre, subgenres. I mean, it's just rock and roll, man. It's like Lemmy said, right? Yes. We're all ripping off Chuck Berry. That's that's the end of it, you know. Yeah. That's for sure. And then that that period of time when I hear that song, I think Stan, where that's what's to my mind. That's what Stan wanted to do. Yeah, he was a hard nosed rock drummer. Hundred percent. And, and Tom went, and Tom and Mike went into these different modes with Jeff and and Jeff Lynn. That you know. Stan was like, let's get the band together and rock this joint. Yeah. Period. No, let's not layer one thing over the next, over the next, over the next. Everybody in a room and I'm going to rock it and, and live it's going to be great. And don't worry if I'm a little off on the recording because it's going to be great. That was like the Stan mentality. 100%. Right. So when I hear that song, I think that's what Stan wanted to do. That's what the direction he wanted to go in. And it didn't because, you know, like you said, it was Full Moon Fever, then Into the Great Wide Open, and then we started into Wallflower as well. Yeah, the the, the timber, the, even the, the tone of what Tom's yeah. writing about has changed now. And he's getting oh, yeah. more he's getting more cerebral and he's getting a little bit more literary and he's getting... So it's the music's taken a, a more a more complex direction, right, in terms of sort of the quality and the, and the variety of, of the songs he's writing. Whereas, you know, like Damn the Torpedoes that I'm doing right now, that's just... Bo- I mean, for, apart from two songs, it's balls out rock and roll. Like, it's just... Oh, it's it, crazy. It hits you in the face every song, song after song. It's fantastic. Um, so let's talk about let's talk a little bit about um, "Damn the Torpedoes" then. Yeah, great. A little bit so. Oh well, that's a masterpiece. Yeah. So what 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 are your highlights from the record? And and if the the obvious ones, I think you know, that's one thing that I sometimes think about. Tom is, you know, when, when we talk about the Stones, everyone loves Satisfaction, everyone loves Brown Sugar, everyone loves Wild Horses. The hits are the hits, and everyone loves them. But the fans tend to want to listen to the deep cuts. You know, that, that's yeah. the stuff that, and the same thing sometimes with Tom, but Refugee is such a brilliant song because it's a bloody brilliant song. It's a masterpiece of songwriting. It's a great riff. It's a great lyric. His vocal delivery is sensational. So I'm, I'm always sort of, I don't apologize for saying, well, one of my favorite songs is Free Falling or one of my favorite <clears throat> songs is Free Refugee. Yeah. So I'll just sort of throw that over. So what, what, would, what would be your highlights from the album? Yeah, well, I looked at it, you know, Refugee, we chose not to play Refugee as band. It was too, well, not just ubiquitous, but it was too perfect. 
And you can't, and they couldn't do it. What did it take them? 50 takes, 70 takes to get, to get it down. You know, that take, and it's probably, I don't know, it's gotta be like 90% live, you know, in terms of the the takes were done uh, simultaneously, not a lot of overdubbing. It was a magic take. So that, that's in like a different category. That's like a perfect song. Everybody knew that was a perfect song. Uh, you tell me from that album. I don't think that's heard that much. Probably deep, deep track. <clears throat> but that was a that one was telling me sort of where things were going a little bit. I was listening carefully. Yeah. To that, Shadow of a Doubt's fun. That complex kid. That that's funny. Um, don't do me like that. That phrase from his dad. Yeah. Which is funny in hindsight. That's an old song, but that that it's you tell me. Probably was the one that I thought, and then Century City, just from my background of the of the nonsense of the music business, yeah, and and lawyers and everything, that was funny. But you, you tell me, it was like, oh, I'm listening to that. That he's he's got he's a different he's a different dude. Well, and just it it rocks so hard that song, I, you know, and it and what a way to close outside one of an album. You know, Tom talked about that. The, the, the sort of this track order was really important yes. to them because you know the last song on side. You know, because we're back in we're, we're we're a vinyl age. That's what we grew up with vinyl, right? So yes. the last track on side one should make you want to jump off the couch, flip it over, and listen to listen to side two right away. And that song does it absolutely perfectly. But you tell me, um, that's always one that it always kind of catches me off guard, and I, I always forget about it. Been on the album yeah. because you get so revved up with side one, but then you come into this now. It's it's not like a rock rock rocker. It's got that groove to it. Now you've got a real swing to it, and you get that great push into the chorus. You know, and it's got those sort of elements. You think, oh, okay, and we're changing things up. It's a little palate cleanser in the middle, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm playing it up here, and it does. It, it, <laughs> it, I don't know if it's a little, little Motown or a little sax, but it's got a it's got a different groove to it. You could yeah. tell these musicians were serious musicians. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a perfect album, right? That's a yeah. perfect album. One thing I wonder, and you probably are talking to people that know everything about it, like it seems like the 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 striving for perfection that happened with the, with with Ivy, yeah, created pressure that then you know Ron's gone, and then Stan is feeling, yeah, you know, put upon. And the pressures build up. He breaks his hand not long after. So is it worth it? Because when you hear Refugee Live, it still is great. Yeah. Well, when you hear his demos, they're great. It's a good question. I mean, and I think that, I think Damn the Torpedoes is such an important album, not just for the Heartbreakers, but for rock and roll. Because Iovine, yeah, I mean, Jimmy Iovine was so driven, and that was his first really sort of, this is entirely mine, and my name sort of is going to be made or broken really on this record, right? So so he comes in and he wants everything perfect. So he makes Stan hit the snare drum 60, 70, 80 times. He makes him play a million takes and Stan's getting pissed off with him. But I think what comes out the other end is an album that doesn't sound like anything else. I mean, and even just sonically. You know, no one was recording drums like that back then. They're massive. They're so big on a lot of those tracks, right? Where that sort of changed the course of how rock and roll producers mic'd up the kits and sort of well what sort of what snare sounds do we use do we use an old jazz snare drum well no now we need a bigger surface area because we've got to get that stan lynch sound and it changed you know and so kiss start copying that and all these bands who predate the heartbreaker start thinking okay we've got to do that now too so i think that in some ways i totally agree that 
they still sound great live. They still sound great if they're jamming them out. But that record, just sonically, it's it's so perfect. Like every single every single line to me is just is just spot on. It's exactly as it should be. So I think it's but perfectly it produced. So yeah, well, I'll walk across, you- yeah. Well, you lose Stan, yeah. you, you lose Ron, right? But I mean, after hard promises, I guess. But you, you lose Ron and you, you do. upset Stan. But, you do. but I think I think Ron would have left anyway. Honestly, I think that Ron was at that stage in his life where he wasn't quite sure that he wanted to be on the road all the time. And I, I think he probably would have left anyway. That because that was yeah. his thing, right? He just didn't want to be away all the time. Where Tom wanted to tour, that was his life. He wanted to be on the road. So I don't know. I'm not too sure. It's, it's an interesting question that we'll never know the answer to. And I don't, and this is, that's a totally non-professional question. I just think about all the pressure yeah, and then having to, you know, beat it for the next album and then having to beat it, it sort of set yeah. them into that music business front line when he, he did want, he was complicated. He wanted success. Yeah. He absolutely course. wanted success, even as he was deconstructing it and, 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 and playing fun of it. He wanted to, he wanted to be number one. Yeah. So, but it was just a big cost. So I don't know. They would have been yeah. great if they had just done that as a live album. They still would have been great. But I hear what you're saying. It's an epic accomplishment. Yeah, it's it's just a, it's one of those slices of, of music history. That, it's like Zep 4, right? It just, it's just, it's a cornerstone for everything that followed it. And so many artists based what they were doing on, again, the production te- techniques, the way that the drums sounded, the ways that those guitars were mixed, you know, and so I think that it, it's just a seminal work that I I don't know that I would change it, <laughs> but, but it's interesting that you were saying there, you know, not not a professional opinion, but I don't think you can ever really take that hat off, can you? You know, because you're always going to be analyzing things a little bit. So a question for you on that side of things. Yeah. I noticed that once Tom had gone through the divorce with Jane, Oh, and, he, yeah. and he meets Dana, it feels like it's almost like there's just this outpouring of happiness and love where the, the tone of the album's change. And even Last DJ, which is quite dark, is still, yeah. there's still joy in it. And then you go from Mojo yeah. onwards and it's just like, it's this guy, he's a completely different human being. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 you know Last DJ is very optimistic yes. in, in a way because it is very optimistic. He's saying... The DJ, the last DJ is a guy. It's an individual with autonomy to go his way. Yeah, he got his thumb, he got thumbed out of it, but Tom is the last DJ in some ways. He said, I can go my route and we can do this. And we have to know what we lost in order to to make something. Uh, and we could do it as a community. It's not one guy thumbing his nose at everybody else, and it's only me, me, me. So I thought it was a very constructive. Um, positive album yeah. that was misconstrued by people that really were pretty jerky people anyway. <laughs> but about, I don't know, you know, I don't know the whole, obviously you don't know the relationships and whatever, but as you look like foreshadowing these early albums and the complicated relationship yep. and the pain and all that's in there, sort of foreboding of what's coming and then he meets her, and then they weren't together. They're both married, I think, when he met her first, Dana. And then they got together. And it is like, you know, it's like unicorns and rainbows. It's a beautiful thing. It's like, this, you know, the, the clouds part, and, yeah. the, and the light comes down. And she's, uh, you know, she just seems to have done such amazing um, things for, for his appreciation of life. Yeah, and it's, it's a beautiful thing to sort of see. 
Yeah, one of, and again, one of my favorite sort of um, stories about for, about Dana is, you know, she was listening to his music around the house. And he said, "No, no, we don't, we don't listen to that. We don't listen." Well, I do. I'm a Tom Petty fan, and sort of forced him to start listening to his old songs again. When he's like, "Oh, actually, yeah, that was that was quite good. Actually, that wasn't too bad of a song." <laughs> Well, shoot. I mean, what if it was Echo? <laughs> you know, Echo. Yeah. Now, Echo, I, I can listen to Echo 20 times in a row. Yeah. And I get blown away by Echo. Uh, if, like, a, like in terms of the emotion emotion from it or the, the, you know, his view of the world or just him as a person yeah. coming through Echo is the one that maybe is the biggest, you know, knocks me flat the most it's not the music of it but it's like what on earth is this guy experiencing yeah and he puts it in words and he didn't want to hear that and they didn't want to play that it, yeah it's like you, you talk to the band members and, and you ask them about echo and they always go like that's the divorce record well we don't we don't talk about that <laughs> no, no, no. next question but i mean what a record oh you know and, and you've got room at the top on that record which just it's funny, like I, I remember in, I think it was this summer just passed, I was sitting out in the, in the yard with my wife and having a couple of beers and listening to Tom Petty and that song came on and I just had this sort of, this really sort of transcendent, transcendent moment of sort of, you know, sometimes you get connected with, with nature. I'm not, yeah. a, I'm not a big hippie, but like you get those, those moments where you have that spiritual sort of thing. And I just felt, I felt a lot of love and I know that song's quite dark in a way, right? The lyric is it's a dark song, but you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder and we interpret songs like you said that you know he reflects what we want him to be but sort of the songs and in that certain moment the sun was beating down it was beautiful there were no mosquitoes for once and i just had this sort of sense of peace up until the point where you know i love you please love me and up to that line it's it again it's got it's got a bit of sunlight in that song i think you know well, if, you, if you choose to right. interpret a certain way right so what well, you do but i mean there's perseverance in that he made it through he's yeah. hurting but he made it through it, and and that is very powerful, also. But oh my God, that song! You got to be in the right frame of mind to get deep into that song because oh, it is, sure. it's uh, it, it's very intense. I don't have the right words to describe really that whole and echo itself. Yeah, I'd, I don't know if he ever did a full interview about what he was doing with the song Echo, and because it's a very interesting structure to it, and and the lyrics are really interesting. Yep love to learn more about what he was trying to do with it. I don't think anybody really wanted to talk to him about that whole album. So I don't know if it's been explored as much. Well, I think, you know, in, um, in Paul Zolo's book, Conversation with Tom Petty, he does talk yeah. about it, but he, he, and whether that was Paul sort of editing that judiciously to keep some of that mm. private life stuff out of it and just focus on the music. But he does touch on some of those themes, but really doesn't dig into them. And I think, you know, it still was a little bit too, a bit too raw at that point. Too raw. And they didn't really play any of those songs live, really. I mean, Room at the Top now and again, but and swinging while well, swinging sometimes. Um, but most of the rest, yeah, they didn't they didn't turn up very often in the live set. Yeah, so sometimes it's a little too hard, you know. God, I, I never saw him in any of the videos that I saw. He never really choked up when he was singing a song. Did he? I don't remember seeing that. No. And I think if 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 the one the one that he would have done, I think would be Southern accents, right? That would be the one if you could well, find one of him. That would be the one where it would be a little bit too much, right? So yeah, like after his mom died, yeah, after he was doing Southern. Oh man, that song. <laughs> All right, different. You know, this guy is a different league, right? Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. He's just, that's why I'm so glad you're, you're spending the mental energy to document this because he deserves it as, as an artist, you know, besides the music, just his impact on art. But that song, uh, there's so much, and there's American history in that. He went from being, and I remember back in the day, back in the day, there was a time when the South, being in the South, you could fly the Confederate flag and it could mean, you know, the racist history, which it was obviously yep. and continues to be. There was a time probably in the 80s when it was a flag of rebelliousness yep. rather than what it really was, which was a battle flag of the enslaver rebellion. Yep. You know, it was a slavery flag. But there was a moment in American history in the South where that flag meant something a little bit different. And he, on that tour, he had the flag. Yep. Right. But he realized quickly and he was like, no, 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 not that. That's not what I'm talking about here. Yep. And he was very clear. So his, his evolution to understanding social, the social meaning, even though he, you know, he said something like, I don't have, you know, I don't have a dog in this fight, this political fight. There's one line. I don't know if it was a hypnotic guy from that album. But I don't know. I don't know if I, don't know if I have a dog in this fight or something yeah. like that. He wasn't overtly political, but he understood racial injustice deeply. And he didn't want anything to do with that. And he wanted to go out on a limb yeah, yeah, a, yeah. away from that. And that probably alienated him from some potential fans. I don't necessarily think he would care about that, right? He wouldn't have given it. Yeah, because it's that thing of, well, if that's what you think, I don't actually really need you on my side because you're mm-hmm. not my people. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And people have said that online, you know, in the in the sort of the Facebook groups, it's no politics. Like, we don't talk about politics. And I totally agree on religion. I don't I agree with that. But then you'll get the old comments every now and again. Oh, Tom Tom wouldn't have thought that. And it's like, yeah, Tom Tom's was, he was a small mm-hmm. L liberal for sure. I mean, yeah. he had very liberal views. And then you could, it comes through the music. Of course it does, you know. So... Um, let's, I did want to talk just a little bit about, um, your music, um, oh, thank you. uh, because I do, I'd like, I, I enjoy, you know, it's the Tom Petty project podcast and we're going to finish with our 10 questions. So we'll get back into it, but I do like exposing people to other music as well. And I know that you're, um, a, a very diligent musician and like you said, you're putting out more EPs, which is great news. Um, but I just wanted to talk quickly then, um, let's grab my notes here. I'm a rhythm guitarist, you know, musician's yeah. a big, a big word. I'm kind of a, a, a punk rhythm guitarist that <laughs> whose vocals aspire to be half as good as, as Keith Richards on Bad Night. So, well, I mean, but I want to be real. I want to be real about it. I want it to be honest music, not pretentious. I yep. want it to be what I'm, I want it to be straight, the straight deal. That's, yeah. that's all I got. Well, I mean, mission accomplished because you sound like you. And I, I think that, that you, you don't try and do, um, you don't try and do Keith Richards, you know, I mean, Keith Richards singing voices, that's a, a whole thing, a whole animal unto itself. That is a whole other thing. But you're not trying to rip off Tom Petty, you're not trying to do no. Bo Diddley, you're not, you know, so you yourself. And I think that's, again, once you, and maybe that comes from a little bit of older, older age, right? I'm, I'm the same. Yeah. I'm not going to try and sound like someone else. I'm going to try and sound like me. And if you don't like it, that's fine. I'm doing it for me anyway. If someone else does happen to like it, great, you know? Yeah, it was really weird. Like, you know, I, it's funny, like the, there are some songs that are kind of punk songs that come out yeah. of my back. And they were doing, I was doing songs that I felt I hadn't heard before. Like good hooks, really good riffs, 
hard hitting, no irony, no comedy, yeah. no BS, no auto tune, whatever it is, just straight out, but with a good song that yeah. had lyrics and was punchy. I was trying to do that. So some of them come out of that genre. Then there's some of these other songs, Kevin. I don't know what they are. People say, what type of song is that? I have no idea what type of song that is. Whatever that is. You know, you said, what was it? One of them, Lockdown, Looking Up. Or There are yeah. a few of those songs that I don't even know. So that I guess that's me because I don't know what the heck they are. But it's what comes out, right? And I think that's all you can it's do is document what out. comes out. I was, I was talking to a guy. There's a band in Alberta um, called Punch Drunk Cabaret. And they're sort of a rockabilly, psychobilly type band. And the, I was talking to the lead singer from, um, and the main songwriter um, for another podcast. And he said that he, he thinks that songwriting is you, you put an antenna up in the air. Yeah. And whatever comes down, all it is is your job to just let it get out. And so sometimes when those things come, yeah, I don't know what it is, but it came and I like the way it sounds. So, But I get some, you know, there's like, um, like Low Down Grifter off the album. Oh. It's got a really – so you get those first three tracks – they're very high energy and they've got that sort of punk garage rock sort of yeah. sensibility. And then we get Lowdown Grifter, which is really sort of sleazy and gritty. And yeah. that, that one in Cardboard Box, they go back to, it's almost like a, that Alice in Chains, Nirvana, grungier okay. feel, right? So that's, that's where I, I get taken. So I like that sort of the switch up and then you get Stand This Up, which is just a pure, again, punk energy just to finish the album. So I like that. You've got the energy up front. We get a little bit of a, a change of pace in the middle because you don't want everything to be the same speed, which would be my slight criticism of some punk. Um, and then we get that change of speed, but then we finish on a high, right? So, yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned Nirvana because uh, <clears throat> and Allison Chains. I mean, these are these are bands that uh, I think met the standard for a shorter amount of time. Yeah, but very innovative, very very creative, uh, a, lot, a lot of energy, and just blew me away. Not at the time, I wasn't smart enough. Right. I mean, I, th- I didn't. I didn't appreciate it at the time. I couldn't. I couldn't get it at the time. It took me a while for both of those bands to say, "Whoa!" Oh, it took me. Something. It took me. Geez, I mean, fifteen years to listen to Nirvana. Okay. Yeah, no, I didn't. I was a because I was a. I was into indie back in like I used to listen to indie rock when they came out. I was in Britain and Bon Jovi. Yeah. But, but so bands like. Um, Again, I've written down. So the Pixies, I quite like because they'd sort of hit the British indie scene, and I know they obviously heavily influenced Nirvana. But then, so, so the song "Barriers to Entry" from for the new album, it reminds me of bands like, and I don't know if you've ever heard of Ned's Atomic Dustbin or Populate itself or well, Wire. You must know Wire, the, the punk band Wire. Yeah. Have you heard? Yeah. So that Pink Flag, that first album they released, it's got that sort of. It, it, they're three chord songs in, in a lot of ways. They're, they're they're pretty straightforward three chord songs, but they've got like a real a real heart to them as well, where they're not just, they're not just disposable throwaway songs. There's something there you think, I'm going to keep listening to that song because there's something in it that I really, really enjoy and I want to find out exactly what it is, you know? Thanks. I, I, <clears throat> you know, I think that pretty much comes out of British punk. Right. I loved it. <clears throat> I learned from it. I, I loved it when it got high energy. <clears throat> I was concerned that it was decadent, like it was it was not doing what it could do. Right. <clears throat> there wasn't enough energy in the songwriting and that the lead guitars were often superfluous. Yes. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a critic, but you know, I just tried to get it straight from a, from a rhythm guitarist. There's one cut where I, I brought a friend in who's, a, who's like a crazy lead guitarist, great guitarist on uh, 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 Tim, Tim Bentz, like uh, just to try to, to change styles up. Yeah. But that's, 
that's that's kind of you to to, to pick that up. That I think those slower songs are are heavily influenced by sort of '90s grunge. Even though I didn't really feel it at the time, that's where right. a lot of it's probably coming from. And so, because those two tracks reminded me a little bit more of the stuff of the loved ones album that you, the, the, the other album that you have on Bandcamp. Oh, uh, yeah, again, yeah, that's not out yet. No, I but I was just, just I was listening, I was listening to them as you know as part of my prep for the podcast yeah. and and some of those songs again you get into you get into that first track and is it Eleni or Eleni 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 and Ruby Eleni. they've they've got that sort of they've got that kind of dark yeah. that foreboding thing but then again you, you you change it up and you go you know up and over which is guitar only there's no drums on that track right. and I don't know if that's going to be remixed but I love that and then you go into you know Leaders Hard Morning Blues which is a total ZZ Top bluesy right. rock song so again I, I do like that variety and i think that again it's got that through line though they all sound like you because you've got a you've got a very distinctive voice where you don't really sound like anyone else and that's a good thing that's not a, that's a really really good thing that unique sort of element to it so i'm really I looking appreciate forward to that it, yeah hey man it's a good thing for the world that, that i don't sound like it <laughs> so then it's, I was a, gonna... it's the voice right it's my voice yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but i was gonna ask that's you so it. The covers are on that are on that sort of within that set of songs. So there's some stones in there, and there's six, five or six, five Tom Petty songs. Um, and then what's the frequency, Kenneth, by REM? <laughs> I did that with my sons. That oh, was just okay. a live. That was just a uh, something we did in the basement, and uh, yeah, uh, we. I, it's just for for them to hear. One of my sons is a is a musician. He's a jazz composer. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, he's won three Young Jazz Composer Awards from Lincoln Center. So he's a serious musician. Holy moly! He really fell against my my interest in in crap music. So so he became a jazz <laughs> composer. Uh, not Tom Petty, but some uh, some other yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I'm able to to uh, collaborate with Lucas um, on a couple things coming out. At, uh, and I and I have on that Loved Ones collection, which is going to probably come out. Uh, on on vinyl probably next early next year. Oh, cool! So there's a love song for my daughter Eleni. Yeah. Uh, it, there's worry in there. There's a song about my mom. Yeah. Uh, Ruby's Road is is really about my mom's story. Okay. Um, and up and over is about my son Leander and and his. And so there's there, those are loved ones. There's a lot of loved ones sort of very very yeah in there. And with the pe- with Petty, and I'm going to probably pull those off. These are just my experiments with it, but I I I I needed to get deeper into into Tom Petty. I, I realized that that was a source of of real honesty and um, inspiration. And, and I did a few covers. Yeah, they're not meant to be you know real covers. They're just sort of ex- experiments with it. But it was a real heavy thing. Yeah. The room at the top, square one, it's heavy. When your arrangement of room at the top is is very different, you know, it, it's, it it's, different. It's, it's what I like about Jake Thistle is he doesn't just do straight covers because any, I mean, not anyone can do them, but everyone, so many bands have done them that there's only so many times you can hear a tribute act do freefall right. and it always sounds kind of the same. So when a musician takes a song and actually makes it fit their mood or their style, I always prefer listening to that because it's like, okay, well that's interesting. You know, when Melissa Etheridge did uh, Refugee, someone had posted on the Tom Petty Nation, and uh, lots of people loved it, lots of people hated it, but I, I like that sort of, well, how do you make it fit you? I know how yeah. Tom sang it, sing it how you want to sing it. 
I think that's the best way to do that. And I, like I said, I really enjoyed Room at the Top. And the other one, uh, Square One. Square One was great. I thought that was exciting. Really? Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. I, I had no right doing those songs, man. Those, But I appreciated I really kind of liked how they came out. Mm-hmm. Maybe you, you'd appreciate that Room at the Top. You know when, when Mike comes in with those crashing uh, eighth notes? And I did it, I think I did it with a baritone guitar, like very soft yes. or, yep. or bass to try to give a different, a whole different feel to the song. So I, I did try to to bring it to a different space a little bit and still honor the greatness of the song. Absolutely, yeah. So you got so this one comes out and like so. Where can people? We should tell people quickly where can they pick up the the album because it is on vinyl. Um, so it's selling it exclusively exclusively through Bandcamp. It is, you know, you've been very kind in your comments about my music, and there's a a, a little label in in Canada. Um, a DIY, mostly punk and hard rock label. And he took a liking to my music and he wanted, it was his idea. Let's put this out on vinyl and cassette. Cause his, yeah. his customers, his young customers like cassettes <laughs> and vinyl. And I'm like, seriously, I, I love it. I, I, thank you, man. His name is, is John page and his record okay. crew records. And I want, I want him to, to really have a success with this. So check out wrecking crew records do it through him. I mean, you can look at my uh, band camp uh, and I have have it there, but I'm really very grateful for, for John for, for liking my music and, and uh, really uh, kind of getting into it and, and, and believing in it. It's yeah. really nice feeling. It's very fun. It's always a great feeling when someone tells you they like your music. And I always think about when you've got Tom Petty or these big acts where they're playing in front of 60,000 people and everyone is singing the words to a song that you wrote in your bathroom or something. How mind-blowing that must be, eh? But how tough it is, how tough it is then to have to take out the garbage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tom, the garbage needs to go in. All right, okay. <laughs> It's funny because it's it's one of those things again. You know, you know he did, but you can't imagine that. Well, it's the same thing with reading John Scott's book. When I got to the the, the the faxes, the idea of Tom Petty faxing someone it just it's so funny to me because it's so funny. random. And it's it's so flipping hilarious. I just I'd laugh my head off reading that section of the book. Oh, um, let's he get, had to get he had to get through the day, man. And you know, yeah. I know you got your question. I just yeah, yeah. it it hurts me. Because he was showing hurt early on. So when you look at Heart Promises or, or all the I mean stuff, you get senses that the man's hurting from early childhood. He's hurting. Yeah. And he's coming hurt. And I just, it, it, it hurts me when he went in a direction to sort of maybe do some self-medicating. Yep. And let him, let in a bad or, or, or in a way that wasn't optimal for his, his well-being. Yeah. So I... It it, it, it it pulled me away from his music when I heard stuff, when I heard his sort of psychedelic stuff, I started pulling back from it for, right. during the time because I, I felt I just didn't, I, I wasn't feeling cool about it. Well, I think it's that thing too of, obviously in the profession that you're in, you've known this for decades, but the rest of the world's just catching up with the fact that it doesn't matter how much money you've got. It doesn't matter what the resources you have, mental health affects everyone and it's a really massive issue and it when it goes unchecked for too long and especially when it starts so traumatically in childhood and it goes on for so long it's it can become irreparable right it, it's really really difficult to untangle all those wires once they've been knotted so it it 
sometimes hurts to hear some of his songs. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I don't, you know, so it's, it's, he touched, he's touched me, you know, I never met him. I never saw him in concert live. Okay. So this is all pretty much saying, whoa, this guy's deep, 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 deep. And it's mostly in the last three years that I, um, said he needs a deep dive. I need to do a deep dive on this guy because he's one of the most important people in American culture in my lifetime. And I yep. need to understand what he went through and, and how he got where he was. So, yeah, I didn't understand. I was way behind the times. I didn't understand what a genius he was at the time. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I've talked about this lots on my pod and I think on the trailer too. It was about six years ago for me when I, and it was when I heard Wallflowers. Wallflowers. Um, it just sort of, it was like, what the hell is this? This is the guy that did Running Down a Dream, Walk Back Down, and all those sort of big radio hits. And then you get this Wildflowers album, which is just unlike anything else I'd ever heard and still, I think, is the last truly perfect album that anyone's released. I can't really think of anyone who's, who's bettered that album since, including Tom. And apart, you know, I love Hypnotic Eye. I think it's an amazing album. I love Mojo. I love all the albums that came after. But that album, he just caught lightning in the bottle on every single track. You know, and I think Rick Rubin was a huge part of that, but that was my, so that was my sort of Damascene moment to say, okay, now I same thing. Now I need to go listen to everything. I need to start from the first album. I need to listen to all of it. And then when you do that, and you realize that oh, every album's great, and there's at least two or it's three. Like, you know, it's like Rick Rubin was just a really good influence. Does that seem? Yeah, to be true? I think I think so. Yeah, I think so. And again, there's there's another trilogy, right? So you've got Wildflowers, She's the One, and Echo. Again, that's a, that's three albums that are very cohesive. They've got a, a, a sort of a unified theme and a through line going through them and that you can listen to them all and so the songs are somewhat interchangeable between them. You could put a couple of songs yes. from Echo onto Wildflowers very easily and, and it, they would sit there quite comfortably, you know. He helped. Ruben helped. Well, another, another genius. I mean, look at the look at the albums that guy's produced. I mean, good Lord. And he was young when he did, uh, um, when he did Wildflowers. I think he was only 31, 32. You know, we wow. sort of gloss over that in Tom was in his 40s. But so this young guy comes in who's a like a, a rap and, and hip-hop guy, and he's going to come and work he's with Tom Petty, and, you know. But he had the ear. He yeah. had the ear. He, of course. He yeah. Okay, let's jump into some quick-fire questions. Go. Okay, so your first one, and again, it's, it's, it's always the worst question to ask any fan of any music. Um, what is your favorite Tom Petty album? If you can only pick one to go to a desert Echo. island. Oh, no hesitation. <laughs> Why is that? Why, why would you pick that one above, say, Wildflowers or Damn the Torpedoes or Hot Promises? Why, why Echo? Uh, it's so raw. So, you know, you've talked about, you've listened to some of my music. It's pretty raw. Yep. Um, with Echo, it's just honest. Honest. There's no pretense, even the throwaway songs. But that that's a human sort of a connection to a, a a beautiful human in great distress who is not just laying it all out but giving you hints about what's going on and it just keeps drawing me in so so it's that, sort of, that sort of emotional authenticity is that's the thing that sort of attracts you to it yeah i can totally buy that yeah for sure okay mud crutch or traveling wilburys mud crutch mud crutch okay <laughs> no question uh, I'm on base. Do you like the Wilburys? Because I know there are some Tom Petty fans who aren't huge fans of the Wilburys for some reason. You know what I'm not is I'm not a critic. Right. Because they're all, they're all brilliant. 
yeah. Jeff Lynn is brilliant, but Jeff Lynn's style is not my style. Right. So Jeff Lynn is a very processed producer yeah. uh, and he layers and I'm, you know, single take, hum, hiss, put it down <laughs> there. So Jeff Lynn's work isn't my particular favorite. Right. And so I think it's probably the Jeff Lynn influence that is brilliant, but not my cup of tea. Totally fair. Totally fair. Um, so question three. If you could join, and we'll, we'll sort of assume that, you know, you, you can go back in time or, or Tom's still with us or whatever, but if you could join the Heartbreakers on stage for one song, oh. what would it be and what instrument would it be? I think I know what instrument you'd play, or would you also sing? I could not sing on stage with Tom Petty there on stage, <laughs> no. And, and who is, you know, Stan, Stan was a great backup singer. He did great high harmonies, yep. and he had to nail them. And uh, you know, Howie was just a brilliant singer. So uh, there was Benmont had his own voice, different from both of those. I felt Benmont when he sang on stage, you could hear Benmont had a little different timber to his voice. Yep. So maybe I could sing. I'd love to sing. What song would I want to do? Yeah. Um, strange voice on the telephone. <laughs> yeah i'm trying to the title's not coming to my mind now yeah that's what i've been playing fooled again. that yeah fooled again it would definitely yeah. be would definitely be the one today i i just have and i've been watching how he how he does that that third chord in the progression how tom does it and he doesn't do it the way i thought he did so it's yeah it's fooled again yeah. well, and it's the, still in that genre of early songs hinting at Complex, difficult relationships, trouble on the way. Fooled again. Well, I'm pretty angry. That's a pretty angry song, and I love the way that he he sort of he bends those vowels. Like the way he, the the intonation in, in the vocal delivery is phenomenal. It's got a little strange. Sneer like yeah, it's got that the R in the strange is really drawn out, and you know. Okay, so number four, who would if you know if you got to see Tom Petty in uh, in yeah. concert, who would be your dream opening act? Uh, what era do you want? Your choice. Dealer's choice. Okay. Uh, I would say, that, <laughs> how about Nirvana opening for Tom Petty? I'm down. I'm down with it. Early Nirvana, like, uh, you know, <laughs> doing stuff before they hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That energy and then watching sort of, are they taking anything from it? You know, what Stan doing? I mean, that would probably be the, at that moment, like right around 90, 91. Yeah. Uh, what, that would be a cool thing to see. Hey, now, what about that? What about Stan Lynch sitting in on a song with Nirvana? Now, there's there's an idea. <laughs> he was a wild man. And, of course, Dave would have would have been really interesting with the Heartbreakers. Dave Grohl would have been really interesting. And he, he just didn't take the gig, right? Can you imagine? Like if he, you know, because he, he turned him down. He, you know, they they offered him the gig after the Saturday Night Live performance, and Dave boss. said, it, and Dave Dave put the phone in and said, "I just told Tom Petty no. Have I done the right thing?" And all his friends were like, "You idiot! What are you doing?" <laughs> but I don't know. I think, but Steve Ferroni, I for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, I love Dave Grohl. I'm a huge Foo Fighters fan. I'm a big fan of his as a musician and as a drummer. But Steve Ferroni is just. He's just a class. He's a, he's in a different class for that yes. band to me. Such yes. an amazing drummer, so and a great guy. He yes. also took away some of the drama. Yes, his smile. He's a beautiful man. Yeah. So he just smiles. Big guy, 
And you're like, everything's okay. Yeah. And, you know, there's none of this going back to Gainesville, hard, you know, history with Stan and everything yep. got mellow. Everything got good. So he was a great, great addition. It's great too. When you, when you watch the, the documentary they just released, you know, uh, recently, there's somewhere you feel free. And when you see Steve come in, he's just got that big beaming grin. You can feel the energy just change in the room. It's like, all right, this is going to be fantastic. You know? It's going to be fun. And it's going to be a great time. And, and he's brilliant, of course. Okay. I think I know the answer to this question. Who is your favorite band member other than Tom? And again, I know it's a cruel question. And it's not to say that you don't like any of them, but. Okay. Uh, Scott. Ah, okay. Scott is the most underappreciated member of that band. And if you ever have anybody who knows Scott, if you could please send my appreciation through that person to Scott Thurston, because I think he's amazing. He goes back to punk days. Well, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's Iggy Pop's guitarist. I mean, the guy, okay. the guy's you know for real, Scott. right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know Scott. Yeah. Again, great vocalist. Uh, really important guitarist in the later years. Uh, and really, I thought he really was a great support for for Mr. Petty in terms yeah. of helping him get through the last part of the career. Uh, so he was really an underappreciated and, and, a, and a multi-instrumentalist. Oh, yeah. a sensational you know, I can't musician. Say Mike, cause Mike is like saying, you know, yeah. Mike is perfect. So yeah, Mike. Mike is unbelievable. But <laughs> yeah. I wanted just to plug Scott. Hey, I'm a, I'm a huge Scott Thurston fan. Absolutely. I mean, he's like you said, he's, he plays everything. He'll he'll back up Ben Monte. Ben Monte needs to play a fairly complex organ yeah. part. He needs a piano, but he'll play a piano, or he'll play organ, or he'll play harmonica, and he'll do the vocals, and he'll play guitar, and he can play bass. If you need. like, he's just the guy who can do anything. Yeah, and he hits all the notes, and and their 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 voices sounded really good together. Yeah, there's that great live version of Walls online when you know Tom's wearing the black polar neck. Um, and Scott's backing vocals on that, are, they just blow me away. They're perfect. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's very, he got very lucky, didn't he, when you think about that, sort of always having, you know, Stan was such a great high harmony yes. guy, and then had Howie, who was his, just his vocal foil. Like, that was, that was another perfect marriage of two people who were in complete harmony, pun intended. Um, and then yeah. he gets, and then he gets Scott Thurston to close out his career. So he's always, he's always had someone there who is a very, very good vocalist. And compliments his, his vocal style. I don't know if it was a. I don't think it was an accident because oh, no. you know Mike's not going to be that guy. And Tom was very demand. Tom Petty was very demanding about the vocals. You couldn't yep. miss notes yep. in that band. So I think with Howie, that's how we got the gig. Yeah, probably with Scott too. Is probably more on the vocals than on the instruments because Tom Petty was precise. Yep. And that's why that's why Mike Campbell never had a, never had a mic on stage with the Heartbreakers, which is you know, and we all love Mike singing, but you've got to be able to nail it every single time, right? So, okay, um, if you could see any Tom Petty concert from history, yeah, which one would you go to? Oh man, there was a series they did in London that's on the series. Uh, there was a series of concerts, London concerts from 1980, okay. I believe. And I don't know how they recorded them so well and how tight the band was, but that was them sort of at peak live to my mind. I heard that the early phase are like different bands, you know, so from 76 to 82, 83 is probably one version of the band. Then you got sort of the Southern accents version of the band. Yep. Then you got the Dave, <clears throat> going into the that middle phase and then you got the post steve stuff but for that early stuff probably the the london 
1980. I think it might have been March 1980, a couple of shows then. Cool, man. Yeah, it's a good call. And, and again, I, you always think about it. I've talked to, I think I was talking to Dallas Helicker, my first guest about this. When I got into Tom Petty, when I was watching live videos, I was watching sort of later live videos. And he wasn't sort of, yeah. career, he wasn't careering around the stage much. But when you watch those early videos, man, he Whoa. had energy on stage. He was a performer, brother. Like, he's got some <laughs> wow. energy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. probably it. And that's the punk side of it. He had yep. pure, raw energy connecting with the audience. No pretense. Yep. He would well, think, I know we, we got to go. You're, this is so cool. I'm so thankful that you, you, you wanted to talk, to talk to me about it. I really appreciate it. But there's a, there's a concert that I saw on, on YouTube. Uh, is it live at the Whistleblower or something like that? Old Grey Whistle Test? No. No, there's okay. something else. There's some other one. It was like an academic setting in England. And there was a heckler who didn't like one of the songs. And he said to, to the heckler, and they were going to play Luna, I think. Yes, yes. Uh, and it's like, oh, it's not one of your macho songs. Here's one. So he was at this very early stage. Yep. He, you know, he was saying, I'm not your macho rock star here. And I'm not, I'm not okay with that. So was, I, I know exactly which one you're talking about because it's when oh, he, I don't know he, where it was, but you know what yeah. I'm talking about. He turns around and he goes, shut up. <laughs> yeah, so shut up. Yeah. I'm not going to play your one. I'm going to play this song. And if you think it's a, a girly song, well, then to heck with you. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Okay. We've got four, four more questions left. So Walls Circus or Walls Number Three, which is the better version for you? Or which one do you prefer? Number Three. Excellent. You know what? It's been more people have said circus, which really surprised me because it's cool. And I love that Lindsay Buckingham's on there and everything, but yes. Walls 3 to me is that's that's the way it was written. You yes. know, that before the production, before getting in the studio, that's the way it's written. You could that's have predicted I was going to say that probably. I thought so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, if you could pick any artist to cover any Tom Petty song, who would it be and what song would you like to hear them cover? Um, I would like to hear Stevie Wonder cover one of the deeper songs like Room at the Top. Whoa. That's a phenomenal call. <laughs> yeah, I love that. That would be so interesting to see what he would do, especially because, you know, with that vocal, to see where he would take it. Yeah. In his life experience. I mean, there's someone yeah, who yeah, can yeah, take yeah. that and do something with that. So that's my call. That's a solid call, man. I love it. And don't expect it to. Um, so what song do you most frequently recommend to people who don't know Tom's music? If you're going to say, if they say, oh, well, what should I listen to? What song would you give them? Um, well, their favorite was American, but I don't. I don't want to, it seemed like they loved that song, but that wasn't, that isn't really it for me. It would be something like Between Two Worlds. It would be one of these forgotten songs where he's staking out uh, respect for other people and women and, 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 and sort of saying how he's struggling to come up with what's the right path in life. It's one of those sort of songs. I'd go, I'm, I'm listening to that once. I'll go with Between Two Worlds. Awesome, man. Yeah, that's a good call too. This is, these are really good answers. I'm loving this. Okay, so last question in the, in the quick fire round before we start wrapping things up is describe yes. Tom Petty in three words. 
<laughs> uh, a, a, a beautiful, beautiful damaged man. Well, any final thoughts? Like, is there anything you want to sort of tell people about what Tom Petty's music means to you um, or sort of any recommended listening for people? Um, for me, it means um, well, not backing down doesn't mean that you have to uh, reject caring for other people. That's awesome. Yeah. It's a funny, it's a funny thing that, and you know, obviously, you guys have, you guys have had uh, had four years of of someone who thought that strength meant um, being the strongest person and bullying people, where strength actually doesn't mean that at all, and certainly not emotional strength. So I, I really like that as a as a quarter to end on. Thank you. Okay, folks, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, it was a genuine pleasure to talk to Nick and I hope that one day I get to like all my guests it seems so far I hope that I get to sit down with him one day and talk about Petty over you know in, into the wee hours over a beer or a bourbon or whatever uh, Nick's drink of choice is um, I'll post some links to Nick's music uh, in the episode notes so please go check that out especially if you like sort of really authentic garage rock or, or punk he was incredibly kind in sending me a, a vinyl copy of the album uh, for the times which was released on the indie label Wrecking Crew Records based out of Eastern Canada. And it's even pressed onto this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful orange vinyl. So please go check out Nick's music. Um, I think you'll enjoy it. Before I wrap things up, um, this is your weekly reminder that you can support humanitarian efforts uh, in the Ukraine in, in many different ways. Um, and I would urge you to do so if you have the means. Um, I'll keep adding the link to the Red Cross donation site um, in the episode notes for the foreseeable future. Um, so, yeah, please, if you do have any anything you can give at all, uh, please consider that. Um, don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. And you can find me on YouTube, of course. So go follow, like, subscribe and do all those things if you haven't already. Um, just a reminder again that The Tom Petty Project is not affiliated with The Tom Petty Estate in any way. Uh, and when you're looking for Tom's music, please go to official channels. Uh, try the YouTube channel first. Um, and if you're looking for merchandise, please do go to TomPetty.com and pick up official merchandise. Uh, don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and the Tom Petty Fans Forever uh, Facebook groups uh, as they're excellent fan communities and well worth hanging out in. Um, until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy. And I'll be back with you next week with a surprise guest episode. I'm talking to a very special guest to wrap up the Down the Torpedoes album. Bye-bye.